This is Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Douglas Brinkley. Episode 11 starts after this. We haven't talked yet about your friend from Woody Creek, um, the Louisville-born uh, <clears throat> Hunter Thompson. Why does he matter? And, I mean, I was never a Hunter Thompson reader. I did read one of his books, I think the Las Vegas, or the, the uh, campaign book of 72. But he always looked weird. Was he weird up close? <laughs> he would love you calling him weird. He loved the word weird. Actually, he honestly liked the word it was spelled, the way it was spelled. Um, Hunter was a gifted writer. His mother grew up in Louisville, and his um, had no father, and the mother had to raise boys. Uh, she was a librarian, so he got a lot of books. Hunter was exceedingly well well read. But his mother uh, was an alcoholic, and so he's sort of being raised by a mother as a librarian. So she, he would have to sit in the library for hours while she worked as, like, babysitter. Um, he got into trouble when he was young, joined the Air Force, um, got an honorable discharge, um, and then started his career as a journalist. Um, he would wrote all over. He went all over South America and wrote articles. He wrote for the New York Times Magazine. But Hunter captured California in the 60s. He got out to Big Sur early, um, you know, like 1962, uh, right when the California of the, uh, the, you know, 60s and 70s was exploding, uh, became the new cultural center of America, California. And he started being able to write on unusual dynamics out in California. And most famously... He wrote well. He wrote about North Beach uh, in San Francisco, the, where all the Bohemians and beatniks, so to speak, were. And he wrote then um, on the Hell's Angels motorcycle gang. And that book, if you really want to read about, you know, Oath Keepers and um, who joins, you know, this sort of um, QAnon or what, who joins these sort of. Um, extreme right groups, just read Hell's Angels. Um, Usually hard luck uh, white families in Hunter's book, the angels most came from like Oklahoma uh, through the Dust Bowl out to California, broken families, um, you know, looking to find a, um, a way to bond and they form a motorcycle club and then they're, they're kind of a menace on the loose out there in California, and it became the media picked up on it, and it became a, a national phenomenon. And Hunter wrote the book about Hell's Angels, which is very social. He's really writing about who are these people in America, um, and it's a classic. And then he wrote um, other ones, but he wrote a lot about the brown power movement. We're talking a lot about black power in America because Black Lives Matters, but Brown Power Movement, Ruben Salazar in Los Angeles was murdered, and um, um, Oscar Acosta was the big lawyer, and then, of course, Cesar Chavez and Doris Huerta and the agricultural fights, and Connor was covering all that in California. And then on a lark, he got an assignment from Sports Illustrated to write about the mint um, 500, I think it was, uh, the, the motorcycle race in California. And he wrote about it, but it went into his weird narrative called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, 
where Hunter used Las Vegas as the, a, a metaphor for America, where we're all taken in by air condition and all the shrimp you can eat and the bling and the blank, you know, everything that Vegas is. And he wrote a sort of satire about it. Um, and most of it's about the death of the 60s, that the 60s is over, that all of that hope and love and understanding of the early 60s by 71, be it was Charles Manson and Bad LSD and, you know, uh, Woodstock Gone Awry and Altmont. So it's actually in a book that shows the end. It's like the wave of the 60s and then the crash of all of that idealism. And it holds up, too. It's the best book of that period. Got rave reviews in the New York Times. And then the Campaign Trail uh, 72 book, Hunter had the realization that the media were the stars. He would see John Chancellor going, was more famous than, you know, Birch Bayh or Frank Church or somebody, that TV had had a big impact on how campaigns are covered. And he wrote it behind the scenes instead of trying to get the big interview with the you know the stars he would write what's it like to be with the people partying in the hotel before the convention and uh, and it it um they were considered gonzo journalism or part of new journalism tom wolf did it, it was a friend of hunters they did that he did the right stuff and electric kool-aid acid test wolf and joan didion who also wrote on California. But who, was, who, who invented the, the word gonzo journalism? Well, the term gonzo comes from a, um, um, a, a Booker, a, a James Booker, a New Orleans musician who did a, had a hit song called Gonzo, uh, New Orleans style that Hunter heard. But uh, the term gonzo journalism as a phrase, a guy named Bill Cardoza of the Boston Globe um, knew Hunter used to carry reel to reel of Gonzo, and somehow that word came up. And Cardoza said that's Portuguese or something for um, you know. They got in anyway. It got applied to Hunter's type of writing, um, which is and now the word Gonzo is just ubiquitous. I mean, it's just people think of it as something gone awry, like um, January. You, you know, it's January sixth riot but it's also was like a gonzo event like you can't even imagine how all these pieces something like that how do you get a you know and uh, and so he was he, he documented all of that pretty well so i think those were the three books i mean he did collected bo- uh, letters called the great shark hunt william f buckley reviewed it for the cover of the new york times and so when i came of age brian when i'm at ohio state in nice fall of 1978 that's when Hunter was at the top of his form. So he was popular. Did you uh, read him then? Oh, we all read him in college. He was like what people would read Hemingway, a different generation. That generation was reading Hunter because we were at the, we missed all of the 60s and early 70s. We were now in the late 70s. Um, so Hunter was the kind of documentarian of all of that. He was a, So my friend, for example, dressed like Hunter for Halloween. And, um, and, you know, he was part of that era. Um, that's when he was at the height of his powers. How did you <clears throat> become the literary executor? He just, he would, I gave him advice a lot about his archive. How it's, did you get there, though, in the first place? Started with the magic bus. He was good friends with Doris Kearns Goodwin, Hunter, and Dick Goodwin. And the, and 
also with Arthur Schlesinger Jr., um, some with some of the Kennedy kids. But at any rate, when I was doing this magic bus, Doris would do a lecture for my uh, students in New York at a like an arts club, and um, the you know, and her and a few other people just kept saying, "If you're going out west, you know." And I thought oh, that'd be great to see Hunter, and we did. We visited him. And we just stayed in touch, and then I helped him with his letters. And then he just, I think, was his, I was a solid sounding board for him. He, we'd call, he'd talk, a friend. Um, and w- towards the end of his life, he came to see me in New Orleans, and he was very different. Uh, you know, you deal with an alcoholic, um, you know, you're dealing, or somebody has drug issues, they're erratic. And you, but there are times when they're not, you know, it's just, you know, you don't know what you're getting and with that kind of substance abuse. And he was very melancholy. He came to see me in New Orleans and it was like a painful melancholy where I went to a, a restaurant to, to eat with him and he would say things like, these are my last oysters. I went, last oysters, you know. And I mentioned to him, I said, Hunter, you're sounding. And he suddenly said, um, you know, I got to talk to him about suicide because he was that depressed. And I said, oh, Hunter, you can't. He got mad at me. He said, don't, 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 don't. Uh, you know, how dare you, you don't talk, uh, you know, it's now an option. Uh, he had a, a hip surgery that went terribly. And he had other health ailments. And I guess what he was telling me is suicide was like in my playing deck. Like how, the, how old was he in this? 67. That, that was my 10th card. I never took it seriously. I thought, you know, people think about it and never do. And suddenly it was emerging towards the top of his deck as options, as an option. With that said, I never believed he would do that. I just didn't. He, I thought he had too much of a self-aggrandizing self to... Do that, but so I was um, surprised to get a phone call. I was at Rutherford B. Hayes's home in the snow in Fremont when I got a telephone call that he had committed suicide, and then I got a follow-up call that he had me as literary executor in his will. He never told me that before, except you know he mentioned it like in maybe you know if you will make sure you help he would always tell me make sure my papers don't stay in my basement at floods what does it mean to be a literary executor um what it means is i try to help his reputation in history and literature um it's i've had to deal with his son juan thompson and anita thompson i know them both exceedingly well it's a very minimal job, but I'll get letters from somebody working on a Ph.D. about him. A lot of people are doing graduate work on Hunter. Did he make money in his life? Blew what he had. Hard. He was really a free... He, he's loved by freelance journalists. There are a lot of freelance people. We always think about who's the star at the Washington Post. But there's a colonies of freelance writers, and they love Hunter. He's the triumph of the freelancer. Well, the problem with that freelance thing, you don't get insurance you don't get benefits you don't you're you're going from piece to piece and it's a it makes some sense in your 20s 30s and 40s but you're in in your 60s and it's hard it's like a musician that doesn't have health care or whatever and um so he always had money struggles but he had a beautiful place called owl farm in woody creek 
where he lived out in Aspen, and he had legions of friends. I mean, his funeral, Brian, was something like you've never seen, this giant fist in the air. And all the people, John Kerry was there, and George McGovern, and Gary Hart, and you know everybody came for the firing of Hunter's Ashes over the Rocky Mountains. How did they fire the ashes? Um, they got a people that did the pyrotechs for Pirates of the Caribbean, um, and then you had to have a code, because you're not allowed to put anything permanent too high in Aspen, so they had to build this entire contraption and take it down. It cost something like two and a half million dollars. And Who paid for it? Um, Johnny Depp, the actor, and he um, paid the bulk, bulk of it. And the um, came and went. It was just like an event, and uh, it was like the end of that era for the sort of '60s, '70s people. It was like it's over with that. How did he die? Um, gunshot wound to the through the mouth. Quote from Hunter Thompson, graffiti is beautiful like a, I can't even read it, uh, ah, like a, no, this is important to read it, graffiti is beautiful like a brick in the face of a cop. <laughs> well, that's, a, I don't like that line, but I can, I don't even know where it's from, but I believe that that would be something. That's um, the anarchist, that's the anarchistic part of him. The, the brutal reality of politics would be probably intolerable without drugs. Yes, I think that's a... But you have to realize these, this is a lot of satire going on. I mean, he's... he's Hunter's a, um, playing Paul Bunyan of exaggeration of the American... You know what I mean? It's a... How do I put it? If Ernest Hemingway... You're watching on Ken Burns. This is Hemingway went to Africa to go hunt. Hunter would invent, I'm going to Africa with a submachine, with three semi-automatic weapons and a da-da-da-da-da. He'd take this lore and then just draw it out to this whole other level. Last quote from him was, as for LSD, I highly recommend it. We had a fine, wild weekend and no trouble at all. That's Hunter. Now, here... Here's a question about you, about John Kerry, about George McGovern, about all these people. Why are you supporting a guy that talks about a brick in the face of a cop? Or why are you supporting a guy that would shoot a gun through a book for one of your students? It seems to me that he represents, no matter how much you enjoy the satire, violence. You know, I mean, uh, well, disrespect. It's fair, question, it's fair question. Well, d- the most popular comic strip of your and our age is Doonesbury mm-hmm. by Trudeau, and that's based on Hunter. Um, there was a comedic, comedic element to him. I mean, he was, he's considered Tom Wolfe, who's the conservative Reagan American spectator guy. Uh, Tom Wolfe called him the finest satirist America produced of the 20th century. Um, meaning, you know, it's it, it's it's hard reading, but you're, he's and those isolated out, you know, sound different. But his his uh, he had a, a talent at writing, and when you write, you recognize the talent. There is a book by um, what's do you know? Remember the one, the Shrunk book? They used to oh, they make used to make everybody read to learn how to write. <laughs> I don't. It's um. I'm sorry, I can't remember it. Um, Zinzer, I think, in Trump. Anyway, it's the book on how to write. One of their 
people in there beyond Henry James and Shakespeare is Hunter Thompson. How to take a situation and break it down as a writer with humor. He was that skilled at that craft. That craft. So you don't have to buy it. There was no real philosophy, but you can see the structural work that he does uncovering things. So he's kind of blowing things up. He's looking at political campaigns and saying there's got to be another way to cover these. Uh, and so he does it as the outsider, uh, you know, the outsider looking in. And part of the brick thing, Fitzgerald, you know, used to talk about the I'm always putting my face in the rich people's, my nose in the window of the rich people's jewelry store, candy store, and I can't afford it, but I'm looking in the window. Hunter answer to Fitzgerald is, get a brick and break the window. So it's kind of like he's building on all these traditions. So when he wrote an article on politics, it would be called The Scum Also Rises about politics, mocking Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, saying in politics, a lot of the bad people do come to the top. And, you know, he would use that kind of language like that. So he's an American uh, original, a, a satirist, but uh, it's a lifestyle proponent or a, a following his pol- political philosophy. There really wasn't one. I mean, he was like Dave Chappelle, the comedian or something, just out there, Chris Rock, you know, he's in that Richard Pryor, he's in that club. Speaking of Johnny Depp, what in the world has happened to Johnny Depp? I don't know. Uh, Alcohol, probably. Um, Drugs. Bad divorce case. Um, You know, it's... uh, I worry about him. You know, that he's hit a a part, but he keeps acting and keeps going, but I'm, I'm not in regular touch with him anymore, but he's... Uh, How well did you sad. know him? I know him very well. Yeah. Did I you spoke write a book him. with him? No, <clears throat> uh, we edited a, a book on Woody Guthrie together. Uh, we found a long-lost manuscript of Woody Guthrie, and um, we called um, uh, uh, um, House of Earth, and it was a bit of a literary find, and actually I found it, but we were trying to get money for the Guthrie's music for kids for after-school music programs. So Johnny's involvement with it allowed um, my publisher, Harper Collins, to put some money into it and went to this school fund. And the book hit number 10 on the bestseller list uh, for fiction in the New York Times when Guthrie's been dead forever. So it had a little bit of a, a nice run. I wrote a cover story of Depp for Vanity Fair, where I'm a contributing editor. Um, we went on a boat from um, Puerto... No, we went from... Um, well, we went to Puerto Rico, but we left the um, Bahamas to Puerto Rico. And I wrote a long, um, a long essay about him. I once did a story, a cover story on him for George Magazine, if you remember that. Uh, so I've known him over a period of time, but... His mother died in this divorce that he got in with uh, Amber Heard. It's just gotten, he's, you know, suing her ex-wife, and it's just (laughs) spiraled to the point of um, tabloid beyond tabloid uh, speculation. I had somebody call me maybe a week ago, and it it looked like a normal number. For some reason, a blind call, I took it, and it was somebody trying to do a documentary on their thing. I just kind of, sorry, bye, you know. But um, 
you know. Here's a quote <clears throat> from Johnny Depp. Me, I'm dishonest, and you can always trust a dishonest man to be dishonest. It's the honest ones you have to watch out for. Yeah, there's a line of... Uh he uh, there, there there's a line of dylan um it's that you who live outside the law must be honest and i think on that quote it sounds like he's he's riffing on that uh that was the sentiment of people like uh, jean genet a great french writer and some of the uh and depth's very influenced by that kind of outlaw um an outlaw tradition you know, they're all Billy the Kids, you know. Um, Hunter used to call himself Billy the Kid, you know, that they're, they're, they're operating in, out, in an outlaw situation. Um, but I think that's what he's riffing on there. One other quote. We're all damaged in our own way. Nobody's perfect. I think we're all somewhat screwy, every single one of us. Johnny Depp. Well, that, that may be true. You know, Depp had a... A bad abusive father and he grew up in Kentucky and then Florida and his mother was a waitress and tried to raise them and he got into a band called the kids and became famous uh, and he was unbelievably handsome and uh, became a matinee idol when they still existed and just did a series of incredible films um, that got People just adored. Uh, I, so many you can't tell. I mean, the Pirates of the Caribbean with him as Jack Sparrow were the biggest raking money movies of all time. But, you know, there's an old adage, Japanese adage, the nail that stands the tallest gets hammered down. Um, and he got pretty tall. And his divorce case came right when the Me Too world was coming up. And, um, you know, and then his... Um, you know, partying, um, you know, it catches up with you unless you, you know, life's so you got a long haul. Uh, and so he's in transition right now and I have to see how he, um, how he deals with it. But he made some of the most memorable movies of our time. I mean, um, Edward Scissorhands or, you know, uh, uh, Willy Wonka, you Car- know, Ca- Caribbean. Caribbeans. I mean, these are films that people watch and watch and watch and watch and every year he would win the people's favorite award uh, he didn't win academy awards for best actor but the people picked his movies as number one so he has a very very large fan base but he hit the kind of skids the last few years is in legal entanglements and uh, i hope he pulls through he's his solace is he's been doing a lot of rock and music recordings with people in the rock and roll world where they have a band and he plays in it called the uh, Hollywood Vampires and it have people ranging you know from Alice Cooper and Steven Tyler of Aerosmith and people in the band and that's sort of his family at this point uh, his kids are grown and doing well and, and uh, acting and uh, and he's just um, so you, when you go through these divorce settlements at that level you know he's got I think another case coming in Virginia soon. Douglas Brinkley is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.